Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Ilya with the Spectrum Strategy Group, and I welcome you to today's episode. I'm very happy to have Marcel Champy um, here with me today, and some of you may also know her as Samantha Kraft. Um, and we're going to be talking about employment, but uh, Marcel, if you can give a little bit of background on yourself so people get a sense of the kind of work that you do and um, you know, see why we're chatting today. Thank you so much for having me here today. And I'd be more than happy to give a little bit about my background. I am a, an autistic woman. I was diagnosed around 10 years ago being uh, on the autism spectrum. At that time, Asperger's syndrome was a diagnosis. And my middle son is on the autism spectrum. And my youngest son, I have three sons, is also neurodivergent, or what I like to call neurovariant or neuro-V. And I have been in the autism autistic community for actively for about 10 years. I started blogging and I now have three blogs and over a half million words written online. I started mm -hmm. blogging approximately 10 years ago as well, shortly after my late age diagnosis of being on the spectrum. And since then, because of my writings and interactions in the autistic community, I've been blessed and delighted to meet autistic people and their supporters and allies and advocates from around the world. I've had over 10,000 one-on-one correspondence with people related to the field of autism or autistic people or those with similar neurological profiles such as ADHDers and dyslexics. I call myself a blended neurodivergent or blended neurovariant because I like most autistic people that I know, and according to research, have several coexisting conditions. I am not only autistic, but I am also a dyslexic, a hyperlexic. I have dyspraxia, uh, PTSD, generalized anxiety disorder, uh, ADHD, uh, not officially, but I'm certain I have mm -hmm. that. And <laughs> all of those um, combine for a very unique neurology, unique perspective. And grant me a lot of uh, empathy and understanding. So I have the ability to connect with, with many people and make many new friends across the globe. And that, that, that is one of my biggest joys in life. I work for a company that is completely onshore, 100% remote, mm -hmm. founded by two MIT graduates. And I have been there for six years. It used to be ultra testing. It's now called Ultranauts, like an astronaut and spelled mm -hmm. similarly, Ultranaut, Ultranaut Inc., and we are an engineering firm. When I started almost seven years ago, I was their very first recruiter. And I, in fact, I just shared on LinkedIn today that mm -hmm. I was a former school teacher, had not any recent work history, was a stay-at-home mom. And despite that, with zero direct recruitment experience, 
they hired me as their very first recruiter. And because of their trust and their risk in risk taking and out of the box thinking, for the last six years, I've been able to largely architect and design the recruitment process from the ground up, which is not only based on now th- over 3,000 hours of study into best practices in the workplace, but best practices for the neurodivergent population. Uh, I recently completed a book, Autism in a Briefcase. It's um, my third contribution to a book now. I completed the book, which is based on my studies and my last six plus years. And it's called Autism in a Briefcase, Straight Talk About Belonging in a Neurodiverse World. And what I've learned through this journey of being an autistic person, being an autistic parent, being in an autistic relationship with another autistic gentleman, and being an autistic recruiter, uh, I've, I've put all that together to present what I would call a social justice piece of best practices in the workplace, not only for autistic people, but for human beings. Uh, I started off as a recruiter. I've also served as the mediator in the workplace, the community manager for the well-being, uh, an advisor to the CEOs and founder. I continue that role as an advisor. And now I'm the senior manager of diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as the ambassador for the company. And we recently started what is called the Diversity with Dignity Roundtable, founded by five of us, um, most on the autism spectrum or neurodivergent, if not all. And continuing on if they are undiagnosed or if disclosed. (laughs) And the uh, Diversity with Dignity Roundtable is a free service with no catch. It's a community platform where we gather the last Wednesday of every month. And we've had um, our second meeting yesterday and we've had had 45 people attend where the first part wow. is designated to educating um, free education about neurodiversity diversity equity inclusion and all things related to autism and, and being a neurovariant and then the latter part is set aside for sharing resources and networking and and gathering other people's linkedin profiles and what's a good youtube to watch with where's a place i can find this That's been a wonderful, wonderful new blossoming of opportunity and connection. I'm very much looking forward to see where that goes. And Alternauts, I also am in charge of creating quarterly webinars. We just had five key thought leaders who are Mm -hmm. non-males present, not speak, because not everybody Mm -hmm. speaks with their vocal cords, right? Present on what it's like to be in the workplace as an autistic person, the stereotypes, the myths, uh, what's working, what's not working. Uh, wonderful five, five non-males. We had representation from the black community, from the LGBTQIA community, um, from people of different ages and backgrounds, including some names that people would recognize. In fact, you've had <laughs> at least one of them on your show. Um, so very proud and, and and happy to be in a position where I am afforded the opportunity to create these experiences and be part of those experiences. Uh, as I said before we started, I could I could go on and on about different projects <laughs> because I have that ADHD squirrel mind. Um, but I'll stop. I'm stop there, and we can continue the conversation. Yeah, no, I think, you know, all of the things that you just mentioned are exactly why I wanted to have this conversation with you. I think, um, you know, 
a lot of the work that you're doing, uh, well, all the work that you're doing is incredible. And I know it comes from a huge need. So I want to kind of like back up a little bit about, um, you know, the autistic community and finding employment. You know, one of the things having worked with adults um, and, and also with parents who are concerned about their adult children trying to find employment um, you know, so many times there are, there's, there's underemployment, there's a high rate of unemployment. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's, it can be frustrating because I think for everyone involved, because it's like, I know that there's definitely something here that we can find, but it's so hard sometimes to find that right fit. And also just sometimes, you know, other, like you're saying, other things can kind of get in the way as well, you know, anxiety. Um, and I mean, anxiety is there for everyone looking for jobs. Um, but, you know, it, it can also, you know, needing to be able to create the right environment, perhaps some sensory sensitivities, things like that. Um, so it sounds like a lot of the work you're doing is to help with, you know, mitigate some of that, but let's kind of, let's kind of step back. So we have, you know, I have a, a large adult population that listens to the podcast as well as parents and educators. Um, but you know, what, what we might see is, oh gosh, this is really frustrating or how do we prepare someone for the work world? Um, so what are some of the things that we, we see that might be challenging. Um, I mentioned a couple of them, um, but I'd love to hear your perspective on that. When I hear that question, it's such a complex question. Yes. That can, we could dissect it into multiple parts. There's, you know, what does the autistic person or those with, with a similar neurological profile, what do they have within them internally that, that are challenges and, and as well as as gifts and things that they can offer to the workplace. And then there's the barriers in the workplace itself, trying to get into the workplace. And there is also um, surviving, which I think is a appropriate word, surviving the, um, the bullying and the stereotypes and the myths that happen in academic settings and the workplace and in general communities, right? So we're ha it's a very complex question, what you've asked. Mm -hmm. uh, when I'm looking at some of the internal struggles and challenges of autistic people that itself could be a full hour to podcast. We could just, we could share together. Right. Um, when it comes to the workplace, one of the number one things that, that comes up is should I disclose or not? Should I, should I be upfront? And in my research, I found that most people who are autistic who disclose regret it. So we still have a very long way to go. And there is another study that points to white collared workers who have disabilities and those with hidden disabilities, only 4% felt comfortable or would disclose a hidden disability. So we're coming against a broken system where we're not able to bring our full self to work in most cases. And because of that, people don't have that psychological safety. Those systems aren't in place. So people aren't always feeling comfortable with disclosing, which leaves some autistic people with, you know, three paths they can take. They don't disclose at all and they risk not getting the supports that they might need or the understanding that they might need. They risk disclosing and facing those stereotypes that implicit and explicit bias, um, those inferior and superior constructs that are continually in place, 
or they can partially disclose. Uh, that's where what I recommend right now for, for most people who ask me, what would I do? At this point, if I went back into the job market and for a traditional job role, 40 hour a week, let's say as a supervisor at a, at a corporation, well, I couldn't do this because my name's all over <laughs> the place that people can find out, but let's just say it wasn't. I would um, probably partially disclose and talk about my sensory processing condition and mm-hmm. my dyslexia, because those are things that aren't attached to this stigma and these myths and, and these false assumptions. Um, if, I, if it was a company that I felt was open to learning and the culture was open to learning, perhaps I knew someone in the HR, perhaps I have a friend there, a colleague there already, then I might approach it differently and I might share some resources. And I want to let you know that, you know, my wiring is unique. It doesn't make me any better than less than, but this is how I might present. And this is how millions of millions of people present and share similar neurology. So if you wouldn't mind, can I share a little bit about that with you and and lead them to uh, actual autistic people? And so that's one approach um, to the barrier of disclosing. Uh, Another barrier is a lot of programs and books, and I've read many of them, um, YouTubes, articles, it's the same thing over and over again, which is trying to fit the square peg into the round hole. When what's really broken is the round hole. We really need to be focusing on reshaping that round hole into a square. So it fits more and more types of people, more and unique ways of presenting. I call it the three Ps, presenting or processing, perceiving and presenting. You know, being a neurovariant myself, I process, perceive, and present in different ways than this imaginary typical norm. I deviate from this normalcy of this Western society that's made up. And instead of focusing on trying to pound me into a circle and make me into a circle, it makes so much more sense since there's millions and millions of us, if instead of pounding millions and millions of us that we started to talk about how to reshape the door to get into the workplace, the door to fit into the workplace and not just fit in because fit in means that I'm changing who I am, that I'm adapting aspects of myself. Uh, Brene Brown speaks about that and true belonging, but knowing I belong, not feeling I belong, but knowing I belong. So I recommend that we stop focusing on how to get autistic people to act non-autistic, which goes against their dignity, which goes against uh, respecting them as individuals. And we focus on what's wrong with the workplace systems that haven't really been re-examined and looked at for over 100 years and that were established by people of privilege, not not non-males, not people of underrepresented groups. So we have these broken systems in place, and even though these are very trying, difficult times, there's a lot of hopeful transition happening because of this. Um, So that's the second part. So the disclosing Mm -hmm. part, the not pounding the the square peg. I'm a square Mm -hmm. peg. I love square pegs. I love dorks. Mm -hmm. I love geeks. (laughs) I love weirdness. Um, And the other part is this um, imposter syndrome and lack of self-esteem wrapped up with the inability mm-hmm. to sell self. Mm-hmm. So the interviews are set up so much to be subjective. 
Um, they're set up to not really look at what is expected on the job description. And most job descriptions aren't well-written. They're, they're ambiguous. They lack clarity, yeah. they lack precision. They use language that is actually ableism or ageism, you know, like join our young group or, you know, come to a, we're a very active workplace. It's like, well, I hear that as a woman who has a, uh, multiple disabilities, physical disabilities. I'm like, okay, well, how active is this, <laughs> this workplace? So we need to not only um, change the job descriptions, but look at the interview process, the interview questions. And, and that's what I specialize in. I actually consult with um, Fortune 500 companies and talk about how do we change this recruitment process from the, from the ground up and make it more accessible. So again, I'm not putting the pressure on the autistic person. What do we need to do to train them? What do we need to do to help them? But putting it back at the accountability of these people who hold the power, who hold the privilege, who hold the resources, the money, the time, the branding to spread, to spread this awareness. Um, in the meanwhile, we don't live in an ideal world. And I know that I'm an INFJ idealist. <laughs> um, <laughs> we don't live in an ideal world. And I could go off on watch the HBO special <laughs> on uh, what's wrong with personality or personality tests. But anyways, um, <laughs> Since we don't live in an ideal world, you know, for the time being, we need to be our own self-advocates to connect with other autistic role models, like people that you have on this show, this podcast, uh, educate ourselves, know what does it mean to, for me to be autistic. Uh, for me, it's a, it's a huge part of my existence and it's a part of my high interest focus, but for my middle son, it's really not a part of his life. He, um, he manages very well. He doesn't need any support systems. I mean, we took a long time to get where he's at now, a lot of hard work and support. He doesn't consider that really a part of his identity, but it's just a part of how his brain works. So for each of us who are on the spectrum, what does it mean to us? And how much of that do, is going to be involved in the workplace, if any? And once we identify that, then then how are we going to build this support group and these resources around us? So once we get our foot in the door, we can be ourselves because uh, we know how much damaging comes with masking and pretending and putting on a front. It's not only emotional, psychological damage, but it's physical damage. You know, it can, it can lead to, to mental breakdowns and to lower and lower self-esteem and not being seen, not being valued. And then you have a worker who's not really contributing 100% who doesn't really want to be there because they're not seen and valued for who they are. So that in a nutshell, I hope I made some sense, but it's such a complex oh, topic. But yeah, those are no, the areas that I would go to first. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. So I, so I, I want to kind of break that down into to two things. I, I mean, what you just said really um, struck me because I think, and I don't know, you know, again, I'm going to speak from my own experience. I, I know working, I worked in the um, investment banking industry as my first job out of um, college. And right, again, I was one of the few women working in a, you know, predominantly male role, then I moved into IT. So that again, I did the same thing again. Um, but, but I remember thinking, as I took on those positions, 
I recognize that I'm a woman and I'm in this environment and I have to kind of suck it up. I'm going to have to basically mask and fit in so that I can get my work done. And yes, my work spoke for itself and so on as we move through. But but there was this exhaustion when I would get home, right, where it's it's. I really just didn't want to, ha- I had to take the makeup off. I had to take the suit off. Like, you know, I was still in the days of you had to still wear a skirt to work and it was just crazy. So I think about that. And I think some people feel like, well, you always kind of have to put on, you know, and again, we don't live in an ideal world. I wish we did. I'm like you, but you know, well, we all kind of have to fake it till we make it kind of thing. And I, and I feel like, uh, and I think some people might think of it the same way, maybe who aren't experiencing it it themselves firsthand, but might say, well, we all have to kind of fake it till we make it until we get there. We all have to do that. But but I want to help people who aren't experiencing it the same way as what I think you're talking about, understand what that might really feel like. Um, You know, I have my own perspective, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you can help our listeners kind of understand what that might feel like other than the typical, I got to kind of, oh, what do people wear at work? And what, you know, like that kind of stuff is kind of everybody works with that. But how is it, how is it different in the sense that you're talking about? So my brain is shooting off in like 20 different directions. (laughs) I mean, that's such an insightful, (laughs) deep question. One thing that comes to mind, a lot of times I'm thinking on multiple railroad tracks. I don't know how it's possible to be thinking at two things at once, but I I managed to be able to do that. (laughs) Um, Wow. So pressure aside that I'm probably not going to convince anyone out there, but a few people. No, I'm not here to convince. Whatever anyone takes away that that helps them is is what's meant to be. Um, So there's the social norms that are known. What you wear, what you see on the outside, um, what your job description hopefully outlines with enough clarity. uh, When it's time for break, when it's time to be in lunch if you're not working remotely. Those are things that are known, but the workplace is filled with a lot of unknowns that don't make a lot of sense. Uh, one thing we're doing at, at Alternauts is we have handbooks about the unspoken norms. For example, what's expected in an email? When I first started working there, like, uh, your emails are really long. <laughs> no. uh, let's let's talk about a different way we can communicate. And so I helped to create handbooks of these unspoken norms. So for the autistic person going into the workplace, it's more than just trying to fit into what everyone else is trying to fit into, you know, the social hierarchy. And, you know, some of that stuff can be quite obvious or even graphed out. So, you know, who your supervisor is, you know, who your coworkers are, or if you're a supervisor, you know, you're the supervisor or the owner, but there's many things in the workplace that are salient that aren't, they're not, they're not there that you would know firsthand, especially if you have a unique wiring, um, how much, how many times should I contact my supervisor? How do I contact my supervisor? What do I say when they say something to me like, can I see you in my office? Does that mean I'm in trouble? Um, When I receive an agenda, does that mean that's the only things we're talking about? And do I have to come to this meeting? There are so many questions and so much thinking that goes on for the average uh, Mine, and this is a generalization, you know, I'm, I'm one autistic person, but I have corresponded with a lot of people. 
we're going off in all different directions. We're trying to maneuver through this workplace. And if we can't be ourselves and be able to ask those questions and understand the procedures and processes, we're under extreme amount of internal pressure to navigate just day to day. So we're, you've heard the disability um, philosophy about, you know, the spoon theory. So my spoons, my energy, my emotional and physical energy might be zapped by lunch because I've been working 10 times more than another person because I'm not only focusing on my work, giving it my very best and having sometimes to overcompensate because I'm underrepresented person to prove myself, which happens with women, which happens with our black and brown friends, which happens with LGBTQIA. It's like, okay, I need to overprove myself so you'll accept me, right? Because I haven't been accepted in the past. So I'm not only trying to overprove myself, overwork, but I've been bombarded with all these what ifs. Am I doing it this way the right way? Is this the wrong way? And then there's also the aspect of object permanence, where I found in a lot of people who have unique wiring, a variation in their neurology, that they just because it existed the day before or the moment before or the hour before, doesn't mean it exists now. Uh, the classic example is when you take a toddler and you put a stuffed animal over it, a uh, stuffed animal, and you put a blanket over the stuffed animal, and the toddler doesn't know it's still there. That's you know that that's object permanence, and object permanence for me is reflected in the workplace. Where if my boss told me, "We're just so excited you're part of this company," and I'm so glad that we hired you and you're doing such a fantastic job. That feels great in that moment. By the next day, it's a race from my memory. I don't know if it really, really exists. So there's, there's again, so many different complexities. And I'm trying to just walk, if I'm just trying to walk through a workplace, stuffing all my questions, wondering if I'm doing a good enough job, wondering if I followed the assignment correctly, wondering if I've, if I've overstepped and said the wrong thing to my colleague. That puts so much pressure on me, and then I can't be a top performer. And opposite, if we create a space where I'm not having to mask, and this is extremely more um, escalated, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but extremely more detrimental for when we talk about intersectionality. So I've, I've had conversations with my Black colleagues, Black friends, about how they're not only autistic and having to overcompensate for that and those biases and, and those stereotypes. They're also having to prove themselves once again because they're not white or a woman having to prove themselves again because they're not male. So the complexities of masking there even become more detrimental to the health and the physical well-being. So in contrast, if we had a psychological well-being environment, and we can talk more about that, what that looks like, a place of belonging then I can enter the workplace and, and millions of other people can enter the workplace despite their neurology, neurotypical, non-neurotypical, and be relieved of those burdens and be able to give more than 100%, take less sick days, take have more attention to projects, uh, make more connections and work across teams because they are able to be themselves. And once you're able to be yourself, you're able to be seen and heard and valued, and know that you're being valued for who you are, not something you're having to perform to be. 
Yeah, no, I think that that's that's super powerful, and it, it you know you I know you you've started talking about that work environment piece, um, but I think um, I mean maybe the word that came to mind for me was magnified, right? So if we already have some things that are going to you know make us anxious or kind of stress us out, and then we have this added layer, um, you know, and and it's I think it can be multi-layered. Then we we've just magnified, you know, what what the experience at work. Um, could be like. And I think something we, we, you know, I'd like to also add as another layer before we start talking about how maybe employers or those of us helping people to get prepared for employment would look like is, you know, I think the other layer is what are some of those myths um, and stereotypes that people, you know, hear when they, or, or kind of perceive or think about um, when we say someone who is autistic, particularly in the workplace, because I think, you know, I, I mean, I, I think it, we'd all be lying if all of us didn't say we had some kind of expectation um, when we're working with someone who fits some, has some label, whatever that label is, we probably all have some sort of, you know, you know, preconceived idea of what that might look like, even if we try not to, or we were like, no, oh, we're not going to think we're going to, we're just going to approach each person uniquely. Um, but, but I think that is the other layer that happens because then I feel like we, someone then has to kind of, uh, again, disprove whatever the stereotype is <laughs> and then, right. And then still also be able to prove their, their worth, even though I, it shouldn't have to be a thing, but like what, you know, how, what their quality of work is and what their, you know, social relationships are at work and so on. So um, what are some of those myths and, and stereotypes that people might bring to the table as a potential employer or as an educator or a parent? Does anybody, right? That's a, yeah. that's a fantastic yeah. question and so relevant for the times and so important. Um, so by, by human nature, we classify and we put things into boxes. That, that's how we're wired. That's how we're all made. And it's not just um, non-autistic people, it's autistic people too. We all classify, we all categorize, we all, that's how we make sense of this, these images in our sensory processing. So we're each working against our own organic nature, um, something that doesn't happen in, in, in every field. So diversity, equity, inclusion is, is very unique in that way, is we're working against our human nature. We're working to get our, against our own implicit biases that we really don't know that we're doing. Uh, and when we're talking about stereotypes, a lot of those evolve from that need to box people, to put labels on people. I think the DSM-5 has over 300 different labels now. Um, and it just keeps growing and growing. And, and we can get a whole conversation about my thoughts there and I will skip that. <laughs> I always have to re-track my train, you know, the track, no, we're going this way. <laughs> um, my number one strength finder is learner. And so I'm constantly learning and then I have too much in my inbox. <laughs> so, so, so back to the topic, um, the stereotypes. So one thing I didn't mention is because of my blogging about 10 years ago, I ended up writing a traits list uh, for autistic people. At the time, it was for females um, with Asperger's. That was the terminology then um, before 2013. And, and now it's the autistic trait list because a lot has changed and we've learned a lot in the last 10 years. And it's been referred to by thousands and thousands of people and uses a support diagnostic tool in counseling offices and what have you. 
And because of that traits list, I've been contacted by thousands of people who have either received a diagnosis or, or tried to go and get a diagnosis and been able to collect a lot of anecdotal stories and, and, and narratives and experiences. And unfortunately, most of them are very disheartening, um, sometimes bring me to tears, still could bring me to tears. A lot of what's still happening in the industry of psychology, psychiatry, mental health, well-being, um, neurology is a deficit model and of autistic being autistic and a lot of old stereotypes and myths that aren't true. So what I hear from people who write to me or who I have conversations with is some of the same things that were happening 10, 20 years ago are still happening today. And these are by trained professionals where they're seeking out a diagnosis, especially those who are non-male and especially those who present well, perhaps because of masking. They're being accused of making up their, their perceived autism for attention, uh, of being a hypochondriac. Uh, they're citing that they cannot be on the autism spectrum because they can dress well, that they've been married or are married, that they're in a relationship, that they have children, that they can make eye contact, that they have good hygiene that they're not a white young male. So what we're seeing over and over again is, which is a common theme in our Western society, is the oppressed underrepresented groups are not getting the support they need, if they even have the resources in the first place to find that support. And beyond that, they're being shamed and rejected. Um, all of those things, all of those assumptions I just mentioned that people share with me, those are all stereotypes. Those are all myths. The biggest and most harmful one that I that we're we're having headway, but I still see sites connected to autism at the, in in the workplace, even neurodiversity in the workplace forums. I still see sites that are promoted that say how autistic people lack imagination and empathy. Um, those are probably the two biggest harmful ones because why would anyone want to hire someone who doesn't have empathy or imagination, right? right? right. Um, and that is 100 and 200, 10,000 billion percent false. Um, mm -hmm. What we're finding is most autistic people, I'm sure you've heard, have more than ample empathy and sometimes mm -hmm. too much empathy. And mm -hmm. that we often struggle with processing our emotions and naming those emotions. And that's another mm -hmm. neurological condition. And also, there's a double empathy problem where it's now been shown in research and in studies that it's not the sole responsibility of the autistic person or the adhd -er or the gifted intellect. I also have been diagnosed with gifted intellect. It's not their responsibility to make someone else understand them and be seen. It's a mutual back and forth conversation. It's just as much the non-autistic person's responsibility to understand the autistic person. It is, is the autistic person to understand the neurotypical person. And that it's a give and take. And that where we were theorized at one time of having this mind blindness and not understanding non-autistics, it actually goes two ways. If we're going to say that autistic people have mind blindness, then non-autistic people have mind blindness towards autistics. We had a gathering about two years ago in our house, two and a half days, 
with over 35 people from around the world, some as far as Australia, one as far as Australia, and New York, and California, and Oregon, and Texas, of mostly all autistics, probably 95%. And we gathered for two full days and did not have any social deficits. We did not experience any lack of empathy, any lack of connectivity. In fact, I have a letter that I screenshot and took a picture of that says it was one of the most profound meetings and gatherings of their life. It changed their life. So another myth is that we have these huge social deficits. We only have social deficits when compared to the Western society norm of what is, it doesn't mean to communicate. We have vocal cord bias. (laughs) Um, You know, if you don't use your vocal cord, somehow you're not communicating or you don't have a high enough IQ. We have body language bias. I'm in a college program. I'm pursuing my doctorate in organizational and educational leadership and social justice. And in one of the books, one of the textbooks, it says the emotional IQ book, it talks about how, you know, if someone's not making eye contact, they're a liar. I'm like, really? This is where we're at? (laughs) Really? I mean, we just had the diversity, dignity roundtable guest speaker yesterday from non-urban India talk about how in, 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 in India, it's not culturally acceptable in non-urban areas to make eye contact. In right. indigenous cultures, indigenous nations, a lot of it's not. So it's just, it's just this random stuff mm-hmm. people have put together to say this is not normal. So mm-hmm. those, are, those are some of the stereotypes that are, that are yeah. still out there that you can tell irk me and I get a little bit <laughs> excited. And the reason I do is because I have heard from so many people and had to share so not had to, but just the nature of me, just shared in their pain and in their trials and in their tribulations. And I have a story I can share that happened to me related to that as well, if we have time. But it just touches my heart that so many millions of people are being told that they're broken and need to fit into this cookie cutter. When we look at the world where all these non-broken people are leading it, it's falling apart. Mm -hmm. We need more broken people. (laughs) We need more people to say, you know, I'm anxious. I'm this, I'm that and share our suffering and and share our challenges and share our trials and our stories and our narratives like we're doing here. So the more people feel the courage to be themselves and so that these quote unquote broken people can start leading Mm -hmm. and, and, using their integrity and their transparency and their honesty and their want for social justice, which we find in autistic people over and over and over again, to make radical change. And that's not Mm -hmm. to say someone who's not neurologically different can't. I always joke that my best friends are neurotypical, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, That's not to say that we all can't make this change, but if we're pushing out a large percentage of the population, neurodivergencies reaching, you know, 20, 30, 40% when you put all of the categories together. Um, what is that saying? What, what is that doing to our culture and our society? Uh, we need to get be- beyond this perfect brain in a, in a jar. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's, it's some illusion we've all been, been leading in. And then that's where we're headed. Um, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of trailblazers out there doing fantastic work that I'm honored to know. Um, and so hopefully these stereotypes and, and these um, oppressions and the stigmatism will lead to better, better things. It is, it is slowly leading to better things. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think having, you know, these types of conversations can help, um, you know, raise that awareness within people themselves and also, you know, within whatever type of work people are doing. And so I know you, you do a huge amount of work and we started talking about that a little bit, um, about how we can make the work environment. It's funny you say, you know, making it more of like a square hole instead of the round hole. Um, I like, I think of it as you were saying it, I was thinking more of like, you know, like those silicone molds where you can, it just changes depending on the size of the Oh, that's that nice. Yeah. That would <laughs> so be nice. Like, Look at you. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm a visual thinker here, but like I, I had yeah. that, you know, a thought of like, wouldn't it be nice? I mean, I, I talk about individualization of, you know, education plans and just working with having worked with people in performance development for years. It's always about the individual. It's about, you know, what, what are their strengths? And we all have areas that we're really good at. We want to continue nurturing those and we want to build leadership in those. And then we all have things that we're working on probably forever for some things, but, but how do we then do that? So, so how do we individualize that? So I'm, I'm curious about the work that you do, particularly whether it's with Ultranaut or consulting for other you know, organizations, what is that? What, what are people doing? Like, what does that look like? It's very exciting to me. Thank you. It's exciting to me too. You know, I, I go through so many, I have a spiky profile, which is very um, typical for most neurodivergent or neurovariant individuals where you know, I, I am advanced and um, pristine in some areas, and then I need a lot of support and challenges in other areas. And so I go throughout my days, moments, you know, like super spiked and excited about everything I'm doing. And then I have those moments of anticipatory anxiety and generalized anxiety. And that's imposter syndrome of, I don't want to do this ever again. I, I don't know how many times my poor partner, David, who's also on the spectrum, I don't know how many times I tell him, I can't do this anymore. I, I can't do this anymore. And he just <laughs> smiles and he nods and he goes, okay, honey. And he just waits for the next day. <laughs> of course, it doesn't help that I'm going through menopause, which is an up and coming diversity and inclusion discussion. When you start parsing, when you start tearing apart all that that's involved, that's a whole nother disability in and of itself, at least for me, right? So when you say, let's talk about these exciting things, I'm just picturing this spiky profile of, well, I'm excited right now, but when we get I might go curl up in a corner and cry and say, I can't do this anymore. Well, um, I think to your point before earlier, just to kind of pause, I think we have to normalize that because I experienced the same exact thing. And it's like one minute I'm like ready, you know, staying up late, doing a whole bunch of stuff. And then next minute it's like, oh my gosh, how can I even like make a meal for myself, you know, another time because right. it just depends on the day. But I think some of that is really normal, like that, that we're if, human. If we there all... is normal, right? If there's right, normal. Right. Yeah. Some of exactly. that is what we experience. It's a shared experience. And it helps me to hear that from you. Just as when I present to other people, it helps them to hear that from me. And that goes back to that storytelling and creating that psychological safe space where we can bring our full self. I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to do that because I have a secure job and I'm confident in myself after years of, of work and connecting with beautiful souls that remind me and mirror me of, of, of my beauty. But we, we need to get to a place where we can go into the workplace and we can be authentic without repercussions. And those repercussions aren't always direct. They're not always bullying and shaming. Sometimes they're like, you're not getting a promotion or you're not being considered 
for something because, well, you're autistic, you won't be able to navigate workplace politics or you're autistic. So you need to go to emotional IQ training. Well, sorry, but there's lots of people (laughs) who are, and I've said this before, who we entrust to our minds and our brains who are autistic. Many autistic people are doctors. There's a group of over 300 on Facebook who are in the medical field. Many are teachers. Many are psychologists and psychologists and mental health therapists. So these assumptions really block us. So how do we get into the workplace, have that psychological safety without the repercussions? That's the big thing. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing at Ultranauts is we are, we started off with, or I started off and the team I worked with and the CEO, the co-founders, we started off with looking at what works best for autistic people. And the more and more I researched and studied and read and synthesized, because as Temple Grandin speaks, Dr. Temple Grandin speaks on uh, the bottom-up processing, where you take pieces from everywhere and then you synthesize it and make it into something different, right, and unique. So the more I did that with my brain and mind, who can be extremely annoying at time, Sir Brain and little voice in my head, LV, I talk, that's how Mm -hmm. I call them. The more I did that, the more I realized, wait a minute, these are just best practices for every human being on the planet. It doesn't make any sense to start putting everybody in boxes. Like, I can't tell you how many times, like in my consultancy work, people say, well, what's best for an ADHD or what's best for a dyslexic and what's best for an autistic? It's like, no, if you want to do inclusion, don't segregate us more and label us and put us in a box (laughs) and tell us what to do. It's like my autistic brain is like, stop, get out of social normalcy. (laughs) Stop this. Let's rethink the system rethink the system. So what I found, I'm usually not this excited, but I'm planning for a big consultancy thing and I'm nervous. So, <laughs> um, so what I started to see was these practices will work for people who have are highly sensitive human beings, for people who are going through divorce, who are going through relocation, who have chronic pain conditions, who um, have any number of hidden disabilities who have visual impairments, who have had trauma, trauma, trauma in the workplace. Maybe they don't have PTSD, but they have trauma. Um, so why would we single out three or four different labels and say, hey, you're an ADHD or jackpot, you're autistic <laughs> jackpot, we're going to help you, yay, and we're going to make you feel special and superior, but we're also going to squash you down and make you feel a little bit inferior. Because we're going to make assumptions about you because you need a job coach. I don't, but you do. And mm-hmm. you need to go to this special training. And I'm going to tell you who you are as a person. And I'm going to put you in that box. So a lot of these autism at work, now it's called neurodiversity at work programs. That's why I started the diversity with dignity Roundtable. They immediately box you. They immediately force you to disclose, to get the services. And then you're immediately stigmatized. There's no way around it. We are human beings. If you hear a word like pit bull, we categorize it. We pull on prior knowledge, no matter if that pit bull is the kindest, sweetest dog in the world. We pull on that prior knowledge. And now I forgot what we were talking about, but oh, universal design. So universal design is about taking the whole person. They're not their autism you know, I'm autistic. I don't say with autism, but I'm not, my whole being is not my autism. (laughs) You know, my whole being is not being autistic. I'm also an artist, a poet, 
a teacher, a consultant, a partner, a mom, a good friend. So it's bringing this whole person to the workplace. And how can I support you as a human being? And it's such basic, like I asked all Stanford Neurodiversity is doing it a summit and they're using universal design. They're starting to say it now too, right? Alternauts has been saying it for a few years now. It's such a basic aha concept. And academia university has been doing it for years. And it started off with architecture, with designing workplaces that were conducive to people with physical disabilities you know, that could maneuver around the workplace. So it's expanding now. And I wrote an article about it on recruiter.com that I can share with you. Um, it's expanding now to talk about how to create psychological safety and systems and processes and, and cultures that are inclusive, truly inclusive. Um, we, we are going back to kindergarten in the workplace because you'd be surprised at how many people in high level jobs, high level um, privilege and power don't couldn't even tell you the difference between what a diversity is and inclusion is. They couldn't point to their inclusion measures. They couldn't point to inclusivity statement. They couldn't tell you what is the difference between equity, equality, inclusion, and belonging. So we might have these brilliant heads of DEI or diversity inclusion and HR, and maybe 75, 80% of the workplace is so wanting to be conducive to inclusion and belonging, but the leaders aren't there, the, the structure's not there, the, the goals, the, the KPIs, I always get that mixed up with my dys dyslexia, but the, the goals and the benchmarks aren't built around inclusivity. They're not built around people. I talk, call it, I've coined it core inclusion. And I think about it as an avocado with a pit in the middle and rainbows are shooting out everywhere. And I actually <laughs> hired a artistic artist to make that for me. <laughs> so, I have, so I call it core inclusion. And if the pit of the avocado the pit of an organization, whether that's academic, the workplace, our faith house is inclusion, then it radiates out. But right mm. now it's, it's, um, it's that quick um, Botox, if you will. It's mm. that quick injection of inclusion. And no wonder all these studies say, well, bias training doesn't work and inclusion training doesn't work. It's like, well, because we're not approaching it correctly. We're saying it's it's an afterthought. It's, you know, it's the it's the third appetizer before the meal. It, it's not even there as a core focus. And we're the way we go about looking at and examining inclusion and belonging dictates role models that we really don't care about it because it's an afterthought. It, it, it's meeting compliance. Right. We're not taking right. the time to have those uncomfortable brave spaces and have those conversations. Um, there, Alternauts is one of the few autism hiring companies, autism hiring initiatives, no diversity hiring initiatives, who has publicly agreed to have its employees take psychological safety surveys and to see how we psychologically feel. Um, when we did a loneliness survey, and these are public, someone could access it. When we did a loneliness survey pre-COVID, the loneliness statistics for the United States were 40% of people felt lonely pre-COVID. Can you imagine now? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And at Ultranauts, even though we were a remote and our remote company, only 10% felt lonely. Mm. And after COVID, do you know what happened to that number? Mm. 5%. Wow. Yeah. Because we're putting measures in place where people feel psychologically safe, that they're, they feel that they not only have a place at the table, but they're actually listened to. And they're not just the ones that are invited but they're the invite biters. Hmm. I've been to presentations, bef- yeah. presentations before where it was an all non-autistic panel talking about autistic people, which we wouldn't do with any other um, oppressed group. And they said how, well, we're inviting them. We're inviting them to this. Or, and I've heard this many times and, and my and the pattern I'm seeing is no, if if it's true inclusion, true belonging, we're the inviters too. We're inviting you. Because if you're not the inviter, you don't have the power. You don't have you don't have the agenda. You don't have the goals. You're you're just sitting on the sidelines. Um, so universal inclusion is about making everybody the inviter and creating places like team forums and community gatherings and storytelling where people like you and I, when you said, well, I feel that way too. I I Mm -hmm. feel like I can't handle life sometimes too. I'm I'm not, I'm paraphrasing, correct me if I'm Mm -hmm. wrong. And, And how that brings us closer as human beings. So when I supervised, when I was a recruitment manager, that's how I led. And it's contrary to, you know, leaders need to be above and confident and never failing. That's a false fairy tale as well. The best leaders, in my opinion, servant leaders, transparent leaders, they're vulnerable and they talk about their flaws. They talk about their mistakes because that enables me to come to work and risk take and take mistakes and feel that I can do my best. And I'm not going to be fired and not going to be criticized or shamed because I stepped a tiny bit out of someone else's box in line. Right. And, and also that feeling of connectedness and also you can create an environment of learning in that type of space, I think, whether it's, um, you know, in a classroom or, you know, or in the workplace uh, or in a family. <laughs> um, but you create that right. space where, you know, you people can learn from maybe if I had a hard time with something and I talk about maybe that hard time, well, we can learn together how maybe we can mitigate that in the future or how to make it better, you know, or at least hold space for the other person in all environments, not just in the workplace or, you know, whatever, school. I think it's it should be a universal way of thinking. You said so many important things in just that, just that uh, one statement. <laughs> so many relevant, important insights. Um, And you made me remember, I was going to mention it earlier, exactly what you just said. One of our higher level supervisors, uh, I won't use any other definers. I want to respect their um, privacy. And I did ask permission if I could share this. So someone in in the upper hierarchy of our company at a company wide meeting a few months ago shared For about 20, 25 minutes, I don't even think it was on the agenda, um, about their personal struggle with depression depression and mental health illness. 
And the chat room in, in um, Zoom was just lighting up with, I'm so glad I work here. Thank you so much. I feel like I belong. I understand. You know, I'm here for you. And it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced in and outside of the workplace. That vulnerability, their vulnerability helped me come to terms as well with, I struggle with situational um, depression. And and as I mentioned, generalized anxiety and post-traumatic stress syndrome, it it is now enabling me to relate to that person whom I work with at a completely different level, at a human being level. And he, they, (laughs) they (laughs) to me are so much more of a leader because of that. There was no repercussion. There was no fallout. It became a beautiful story that I even shared in an article that I shared publicly about what we're doing at the company. Um, Those types of stories, those types of experiences. We need people in positions of power to start being vulnerable and to start talking about what it is to be a human being. And we need the non-autistics to stop masking (laughs) all the time. Um, Right. 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 So one of the unique things we're doing at Ultranauts that can sum it up better than anything else and kind of brings all this together is instead of what some companies do is assigning a job coach to autistic people, assuming incompetence, right? Some autistic people require that. Some non-autistic people require job coaches. It's not an autistic (laughs) thing. And and, and there's nothing wrong with having a job coach. My partner is a job coach. I support it wholeheartedly. I've used a job coach. I've used a job coach many times. There's nothing wrong with it. What's not okay is assuming and assigning someone a job coach when they don't, they might not need it. And so what we do differently at Ultranauts is our job coach is free to everyone, unlimited access. They can go every week. And so not only autistic people and non-autistic, but guess what? Guess what the neurology of our job coach is? They're autistic. That sums it up how we're doing it differently. We're stepping out of this round hole, right? your silicon, your, your flexibility. We're we're actually just like rising up, like, you know, water from a geyser and we're just walking across the silicon and we're jumping off and saying goodbye. This, This ain't working. And, um, so I feel very blessed, very fortunate that I was given the freedom to create some of these procedures and processes and, and to collaborate with people of all different types of minds to put these systems in places, brilliant minds and, and, and supportive minds, supportive people. And that's another aspect of universal design inclusivity, which I call core inclusion, is when they hired me, as I, I think I mentioned before, I didn't have any recruitment experience. I didn't have a degree in business. I hadn't had any work experience in recent years. But at that point, at that very baby stage of the company, the leaders were able to see beyond those traditional means of hiring someone. And had they not had that universal design lens, which they didn't even know they were using, 
which we didn't even know was happening, I never would have been hired and I never would have been given the opportunity to have these platforms, to be on these platforms with people like you who are making a huge difference in spreading acceptance and awareness. So it's a full circle. It's a, it's a full circle. And that's probably what excites me the most is seeing that cyclic journey uh, of where we started and, and where we are now and how it kind of all goes back to we're practicing what we practice so that we could practice it, you know? <laughs> exactly. And, and, and it will be, it will be an, ev- you know, it will be an evolution and it will keep um, pushing forward. And thank you so much for your words um, because it, it, it is part of, I mean, it's all of why I do what I do. So uh, I appreciate that. And with um, where can people find if they want to connect and learn more about you know, your organization and the work that you do. Um, cause you, you know, I, I have a feeling people are going to want to start looking for things after they hear, <laughs> they hear our conversation, where can they find you? Um, so the easiest place to find me is under my, um, I have both names listed on my LinkedIn profile, Marcel Champy, AKA Samantha Craft on LinkedIn. I post a lot of resources there. I just posted a different brains video, a panel of employment and um, autistic people, you might be interested in that. Uh, I share articles that I've written there. They can read more about this topic if they Google my name and LinkedIn articles. I think I've written like, I don't remember, 20 some odd articles on this topic. They can reach out to me at Ultranauts. Um, My email is marcel at ultranauts.co. And it's U-L-T-R-A, Ultra, not N-A-U-T-S. And it's C-O, not C-O-M, dot C-O. Direct message me on LinkedIn. I'm also Samantha Craft on Facebook. They can find me there. Um, at the Diversity with Dignity Roundtable, for, sur- for sure. Uh, everyone's welcome to join from all walks of life all around the globe. It's about equality. N- autistic people aren't better or less than. We're all in this together. We're all human beings. Uh, they can find the Ultranauts webinars that I'll post. And I do several keynotes and presentations. I'm, I'll be keynoting um, at Chico University in California, um, some in South Dakota. I'm also going to be keynoting at a virtual India in conference in India. And I can share those links. I do share those links on LinkedIn so people can join if they want. Um, so yeah, those are different ways to reach out to me. I will say that right now, um, I'm asking a lot of people if they want to learn more about this topic to join our roundtable because I don't have enough of me's <laughs> to to respond to everyone in the way I'd love to respond. Um, you know, it's a mixed bag. I, I love that more acceptance and awareness is being spread, but at the same time, I do miss being able to have that that intimate one-on-one conversations with a lot of people. So the diversity dignity roundtable is a good place to interact and ask questions. And the great thing about that is it's not just me, but it's a lot of other ex- experts and a lot of other people with fantastic knowledge and from different walks of life who can share their experiences. So they're not just learning from me that way. And I, I much prefer that. Okay, great. Thank you so much for sharing all of that and for, you know, spending uh, this time with me today. And, you know, hopefully we can um, find some other topics that we can talk about. I think I think we could find a lot of things for sure. 
Yes. And if I could, I could just say one quote. I have like 10. So funny. I have like 10 um, index cards in front of me and I didn't really look at hardly any of them, but there's this one quote (laughs) is from John O'Donohue who wrote the Anamkara, which means soul friend. And he said that work is a place where the soul can enjoy becoming visible and present. The rich unknown reserved and precious within us can emerge into visible form. And that is what I hope one day many of us will be fortunate enough to, if not create, then to find as a place where we can be jo- enjoy becoming visible and present. Yeah, I think that helps sum up why uh, work is so important um, as part of our as part of our lives. Um, I like that. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your energy and following my, my squirreliness, this whole conversation. Um, Oh, it's great. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. And thank you for being here. I appreciate your time. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Keep in touch. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching, and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.